It's Thursday, March 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The U.S. will provide $800 million in new military aid to Ukraine, totaling over $1 billion so far to help them fight back against Russia. This comes after Ukrainian President Zelensky made an impassioned plea to Congress for more help, including a no-fly zone. Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill, joins us for more. Next, more than a third of the CDC's wastewater samples across the U.S. are showing rising COVID trends for the first two weeks of March. Sewer samples can often spot increasing virus levels before official test results. It's unclear if this points to an upcoming wave, but we currently have 98% of the U.S. population that is in places with a low community level rating. Drew Armstrong, Senior Editor for Healthcare at Bloomberg News, joins us for what the wastewater is signaling. Finally, the COVID pill made by Merck has been prescribed heavily despite some concerns. Regulators and doctors think that the Merck pill should be one of the last options in treating COVID because of concerns that it could cause birth defects and cause more variants to form. But with Pfizer's pill in limited supply, many doctors have turned to Molnupiravir. Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what to know about the Merck COVID antiviral. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It'll include 7,000 small arms, machine guns, shotguns, grenade launchers to equip the Ukrainians, including the brave women and men who are defending their cities as civilians and they're on the countryside as well. Joining us now is Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thank you for having me, Oscar. Well, we have just been following along with the crisis in Ukraine uh, three weeks now, it seems. I think it is. It's no end in sight, really, for the time being. And uh, what we just saw on Wednesday was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky make an impassioned plea to Congress uh, over a, a video call. And uh, hats off to him for stepping up so much in what's going on with this, but really just uh, making those pleas for more help from the United States, from all the allies, really trying to hit home that notion of we need a, a no-fly zone because people are, are really getting hurt. And he played this video, you know, just showing kind of Ukraine beautiful before and then after, you know, the shelling hitting, people fleeing the country, injuries, very graphic stuff. And at the end, it said we need a no-fly zone. It kind of, the, the lettering came out. I mean, so just some really powerful stuff from Zelensky. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was meant to really tug at the heartstrings of not only President Biden and U.S. lawmakers, but also the American people watching this. Look, I think Zelensky has really captured the hearts of a lot of not only Americans, but also Westerners. He is an extremely popular figure right now in the West, uh, especially how we've seen him very much step up in this fight against Vladimir Putin and Russia. But in that video, I thought it was remarkable that, first of all, he showed he showed the video um, really drawing a contrast the before and after, it, you know, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what the civilians have gone through. But he also really tried to relate to Americans talking about the attacks on Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and essentially saying, imagine those attacks happening every day for three weeks. Right. And that's essentially what he has said, is, you know, Ukraine is going through. And that's what we're seeing, really, Ukraine going through. 
And I think Zelensky understands that Biden and Western leaders are in a very difficult position. Um, And he's also obviously in a difficult position right now. Westerners or Western leaders don't want to take that step of implementing a no-fly zone because they don't want tensions and violence really to escalate in the region. They're afraid that this is going to lead to an all-out war. However, it's interesting, Volodymyr Zelensky is appearing in an interview Wednesday evening on NBC Nightly News, and he told, you know, anchor Lester Holt that he believes that World War III may have already started. So we might be yeah. really coming into a new normal of a conflict zone, really, in Ukraine and maybe even Eastern Europe. President Biden, a few hours later, responded, you know, still no real option of a no fly zone right now, because to your point, Zelensky said we might already be in World War Three. But that's the big concern. We don't want to be pulled into a larger conflict and enforcing a no fly zone could do that. But what President Biden did say is that we're going to provide them more military aid, more money, $800 million in new military aid, over a billion dollars so far. Yeah, and I think that's what you are going to see, you know, not only the U.S., but other Western nations continue to do to really ramp up that military aid and military spending for Ukraine. Look, you know, even though the West is not moving in the direction of implementing a no-fly zone, I think everyone is very aware that this is hitting pretty close to NATO territory. In fact, I believe it was on Monday or Tuesday, Russia shelled an area that was probably, or Russian rockets landed in an area that was probably 12 miles or so from the Polish border. And Poland is obviously a part of NATO. And we know that the NATO charter essentially states an attack on one NATO member country is an attack on all NATO member countries. So they're very much trying to thread a needle as to how to de-escalate the situation, how to control Russia, you know, try to get them to de-escalate. But it's definitely a difficult position they find themselves in. There was an interesting thing from a Pew Research Center poll. 35% of Americans favor some type of military action, even if it risks nuclear conflict. But, you know, the flip side, 62% said they oppose taking some of these steps. So while it is all very emotional and everything, I think everybody's well aware of the risks we face. Yeah. And I think there's also this history we have to take into account of Americans in foreign conflicts. You know, we just last year wrapped up American troop presence in Afghanistan after nearly 20 years. And we know that a few years before that, we wrapped up up American troop presence in Iraq. And I think there is a real sense of fatigue right now that Americans feel when it comes to getting involved in foreign conflicts. We are also facing you know, a lot of issues at home and a lot of the issues we face are also being faced by a lot of these Western countries as well as countries around the world in general, the coronavirus pandemic, inflation, rising energy prices. And I think there's a question as to if we were to put boots on the ground or become involved militarily with our own military personnel, what that would do to impact people living in their home countries. So it's a very difficult position, but I think it is remarkable, really to see, you know, even though Americans polling shows they're not in favor of plurality or a majority aren't in favor of getting involved in a military sense, they are very much in favor of sanctioning Russia and very much putting pressure on Russia. And that's where you see the unity in all of this. Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Mr. 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 Mr.
the great thing about sewer data is that it is well in advance of what's happening sometimes by days or maybe even a week if we're lucky. The bad thing about sewer data is it doesn't tell you how many people are actually sick. Joining us now is Drew Armstrong, Senior Editor for Healthcare at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Drew. Happy to be here. Well, earlier in the week, actually, we did a story about the CDC wanting to expand the program that they have going that monitors wastewater in the hopes to detect, you know, future variants, uh, rising cases of COVID. That program is kind of a hit and miss right now. There's a lot of states that don't want to participate. There's some that are, but uh, aren't really providing all the data. And then I saw your article where we're already seeing some uh, rising uh, levels of COVID in the wastewater in some of these programs and these areas that are participating in this. And um, we've been seeing cases drop right now with COVID, but this could be a sign that things could be on the uptick. We don't know. There's a lot of uh, variables at play with all of this. So Drew, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing in some of this uh, latest wastewater data? Wastewater surveillance is a tool that public health um, teams can use to check for virus in a way that doesn't require people to go and get tested or to report their at-home test results or anything like that. And it's great if it's a little bit gross um, because our bodies give off virus or viral particles in all sorts of ways. And one of the ways that that happens is when people are sick and they poop, it goes into the sewer systems. <laughs> right. And you can then, you know, find samples of virus after you, you scoop out a sample of sewer water, basically, and run it through some analysis. That can be really, really useful. And what it's good at is detecting trends. It can tell you that the amount of virus in the wastewater is going up, or it can tell you the amount of virus in the wastewater is going down. And the nice thing about it is that it often will show up there actually a few days before people might test positive. So it's also really good at identifying things further in advance than might be happening you know, when people are actually sick and going in to get tested. So it's one of these things that the CDC and state and local public health departments around the country use to try and identify, okay, do we have a signal here that this is going up or down? And the good news is that since the peak of the Omicron wave around most of the country, these signs have been going down, you know, just as positive test numbers have been going down. We're at a very low level of cases right now. But the reason we decided to look into this and say, OK, what's going on with the latest here? One, just I happened to know a whole bunch of people who had recently gotten COVID over the last couple of weeks. And two, you know, the U.S. tends to follow this pattern that we've seen in Europe. They tend to be a couple of weeks ahead of us. And Europe has been going through a little bit of a surge in cases as they've lifted a lot of public health restrictions and come down off of their wave. And, you know, it's not everywhere. It's not as big yet. But obviously something going on. So we wanted to look. We looked at the wastewater data for the last 10, for, for the first 10 days of March. And what we saw was this little signal in there where there were about a third of sites around the U.S. where that were pointing very much upwards in these sewer samples. We don't know what it means yet. We don't know if there's a real meaningful bounce in cases happening here, or if it's just a little tiny bump coming off of a very low baseline. I think it is early. It's interesting. Something's happening there, but it's a little bit too early to know exactly what it means. This is kind of looking at trends. A lot of people right now, thankfully, are getting more milder cases. A lot of people are testing at home. So they're not necessarily reporting those things. They're just getting sick. They're staying home. They're taking the measures they need to get better. 
and boom, they move on, right? So a lot of these uh, latest cases, latest numbers could possibly, we could possibly be missing them. It's such a useful tool to look at the wastewater. I don't think I've, I can't remember the last time I took a PCR test in, in a way that's reportable when I've gotten sick. You know, it's just easier for me to do at-home testing. I think that's true of a lot of people. And I'm like a good public health citizen. I cover this stuff for a <laughs> living. I've never reported my test results. I don't know anybody who has, you know, so at-home testing is really good as an individual tool. And it has a lot of good things about it for a, as a public health tool. What it's not good at is collecting data and having that data translate into things. I have a theory, which is that, you know, and if you talk to a lot of people who work on this, one of the things that we do know is that immunity to infection, you know, which can be very mild once you've been vaccinated or if you've been previously infected, that fades over time. And just again, anecdotally, this is not data, but most of the people I know who've gotten sick are people who are vaccinated and got their boosters a while ago, right when they were first eligible and had kind of gotten sick in this most in this last few weeks, it may just be that there's some fading of immunity while there's some virus kicking around. And a lot of people who had been taking a lot of precautions, who've been vaccinated, who were in these areas where, you know, they got vaccinated a while ago, or there was a wave a while ago, you know, they are vulnerable to infection, maybe not to a severe outcome, but vulnerable to infection. We're kind of seeing these last little aftershocks of what it could be. I, I think we really don't know. The great thing about sewer data is that it is well in advance of what's happening sometimes by days or maybe even a week if we're lucky. The bad thing about sewer data is it doesn't tell you how many people are actually sick or, you know, yeah. it doesn't give you that kind of granular data that you would really be able to get with comprehensive testing that gets reported in. Drew Armstrong, Senior Editor for Healthcare at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Even though the Pfizer pill was preferred and, in fact, recommended by authorities, the Merck pill is what ended up being prescribed very often because it happened to be there in stock. Joining us now is Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jared. Thanks for having me. Well, we're looking at uh, what we got going so far as therapeutics for COVID-19. And there's two COVID pills out there right now, one from Pfizer and one from Merck. You know, the Pfizer one seems to be the, the pill of choice for doctors. They say that the Merck one should probably be used as a last resort. But what we're seeing is it's getting heavy, heavy usage, uh, despite some concerns, because just the limited supply of the Pfizer pill. So, Jared, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing and what do we know about this Merck COVID pill? So the Merck pill is called monopuravir. And the Pfizer pill is called Paxlovid. And, and the main difference here, or there's a couple of main differences, is that the Merck pill was shown in a clinical trial to be 30% effective at reducing hospitalization and death. And the Pfizer pill was shown to be 88% effective. But a, a big difference here is that, uh, and both pills were cleared for use back uh, late last year. However, the Pfizer pill was in much, much less supply. There was much less supply of the Pfizer pill. And so when physicians and when providers found themselves amidst this Omicron surge, even though the Pfizer pill was preferred and in fact recommended by authorities, the Merck pill is what ended up being prescribed very often because it happened to be there in stock. 
And here we are in in mid-March, and the two pills are are pretty much neck and neck in prescriptions, which is is surprising to to many people. Yeah, the prescription numbers. So 74,000, over 74,000 for the Merck pill, 79,000 for Paxlovid, the the Pfizer pill. So just like you said, just neck and neck. But there are concerns with, with both pills. So Paxlovid, the Pfizer one. I guess there's potential harm of mixing it with other medicines. Do we know what types of medications would cause some problems with that one? Yeah, so there's a lot of common medications that people take that have potential to be safety risks if they are taken in combination or mixed with Paxlovid. This can be just cholesterol-controlling drugs, cholesterol-lowering drugs, commonly known as statins but as well as uh, certain kidney disease uh, and liver disease drugs as well. So these individuals, these patients might not be able to take Paxlovid. It's, it's up to, you know, with their doctor. However, what we've seen is that some of these interactions are actually manageable. So, for example, statins, for people who are taking statins, physicians are saying, hey, once you're done with, you know, when you're taking Paxlovid, just pause your statin and take Paxlovid for those five days that Paxlovid is need to be taken, and then resume your statins after that. So it's been a little bit manageable. But because of these interactions, there are still many patients who can't take Paxlovid, yeah. and therefore then the physicians are prescribing them monopiravir. So monopiravir is also filling this hole for patients yeah. who might not be able to get or to take Paxlovid. And there's also some concerns with the Merck pill, too. One among them was that it could cause a higher frequency of virus mutations because of the way the pill works. Uh, Some other people said it could also cause birth defects. I I hadn't heard that one. And and they tell their male patients to, you know, either not have sex or use condoms for at least three months after the treatment. So, I mean, those are some interesting things I had not heard previously. So the the Merck drug actually works by inserting errors into the, uh, it stops the virus by inserting errors into the genetic code of the virus. However, what, what was found was that in animal testing was that the drug could cause birth defects. And so as a result, it's not recommended for pregnant women or women of childbearing age uh, or interested in, in becoming pregnant. And as a result, men who are prescribed it are recommended to use a contraception, birth control for at least three months after taking the treatment. You know, that, that has actually caused some physicians that I talked to, that has caused some patients to forego that treatment, some men who, who with Lented. So there are some concerns. The concerns from physicians are, hey, we've got a drug here that is 30% effective, so not as effective as, as another pill, the Pfizer one, and we have some risks here. So why not go with Paxlovid instead? And that is why Paxlovid is, is what is recommended by the FDA, the National Institutes of Health, and uh, the Infectious Disease Society of America. They say go with Paxlovid. That's the primary one. If that's not available, then recommend antibody treatments. If those aren't available or people can't take those, they even want you to take a different antiviral from Gilead. And if that's not available, then you get to monopiravir. Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.